I need you guys to back up. Yeah. All right. Hey guys, back up. Fortunes above $50 million. You make it that big, pitch in two cents so everybody else in this country gets a chance to make it. What's the key to gaining traction here in the United States? Well, a lot of it is good old-fashioned retail politics. We're doing the policy release to do the national conversation. People here want to get to know you. They want to know what you're about. I'm well. Better for talking to you, Carol. Better for talking to you. <laughs> but she's freaking out. <laughs> and as his vice president, it's my great honor to add his name to the New Hampshire Republican primary ballot today because we need New Hampshire and America to give us four more years. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. Dr. Laura Brown, uh, director of George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. So that is a glimpse of the 2020 primary process, uh, the, a process that this year attracted more than 20 Democrats, last time around more than 17 GOP candidates vying for the nomination. You've spent your academic career trying to understand and explain uh, the American electoral process. W when you try to explain where we are today to people and how this process works, how do you explain it? Well, I think the thing that you have to start with first is that competitiveness drives a lot of candidates. So one of the things that's so interesting when we really understand why there are so many candidates in the Democratic primary field, why were there so many Republicans in uh, the 2016 field, it was because the presidency was seen as being up for grabs um, in both instances. In uh, 2016, it was an open seat, and there was this belief that the Republicans could win um, that seat from the Democrats, and so so many Republicans jumped in. And when we look at 2020, you see that President Trump is something of an embattled incumbent, and that usually also sparks candidates uh, in the opposition party to jump in and try to vie for the presidency. When you look across both fields, what, what uh, should we know about the kinds of people who actually throw their hats into the ring these days? Well, the interesting part is that since really about 1976, our um, candidates have had more and more individuals who have claimed that they are outsiders. First, they began as these outside Washington politicians, governors um, like Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. Um, but now, what we've seen in the last few cycles are more and more individuals like President Trump saying, I'm not even from the political system at all. In fact, if you look at uh, candidate Tom Steyer's ads, he is running precisely on the same line of Donald Trump's, that he is a Washington outsider and a businessman who can fix the system despite having no political experience before joining the system. We thought we would spend this hour with you learning how we got where we are today by really going through history at the major points in the process where uh, the electoral system has changed. So we got to go back to the beginning. Um, <laughs> you've written about, uh, and this is really the beginning, starting in the Continental Convention and the debates uh, amongst our founding fathers about the selection process for the president. I remember a phrase you used that they were in a circular debate for a long time. What's important to know about 
what they were trying to achieve and and what came out of it. Well, when we look back, we have to realize that our framers were trying to do something that wasn't done um, around the world. They were trying to figure out how to elect an executive um, for the country. That was not something that was done. All around the world, there were hereditary monarchs um, in power. And so as they looked out, they looked to governors of states, um, and they really tried to invent their own system. So they said, well, let's see, should the Congress elect the president? And then they said, no, if, you know, they do that, then the president will be the creature of Congress, meaning that Congress will own the presidency. And then they said, should there be a direct popular election? And then they said, no, that won't likely um, result in sort of any sort of consensus. And there was going to be too much chaos to go with it and impracticalities at that moment in time. So they came upon um, a notion of the Electoral College. And what this basically was, was a way to say, let's get um, leaders from each state to go to their state capitals, have a meeting as electors, and for the specific purpose, um, put forward names, vote on, if you will, uh, two different people who could potentially be president and send them up to Congress to determine who is actually the winner. That's really how it started. It started with this idea of let's get um, some local leaders to help create some nominees. So, uh, of course, in the past couple decades, the debate's been raging again about whether or not the Electoral College still works for a country of this size, complexity. Can you give us the pros and the cons of the Electoral College today? Well, I think the actually the biggest thing in its favor is that it does have a tendency to force presidential candidates to campaign broadly and to win different states narrowly because it's more important to win a lot of states by 51 percent than it is to win a couple states by 60 percent. And what that does is it ensures that the president, in fact, represents most of the states in addition to most of the people. In other words, the Electoral College really does do what the framers had hoped, which was that it would be an office, the presidency itself, that represented the people but through their states. So the combination of the House and the Senate. Um, the biggest problem with it is actually a problem that the parties created themselves and, in fact, is not related to the Electoral College. It's related to how each state allocates its electoral votes. Um, right now, all states but Maine and Nebraska allocate those electoral votes um, in a winner-take-all manner, meaning that if you win a state by 51 percent, you will win all of that state's electors. Um, a much more fair way would be for there to be essentially proportional representation um, by the awarding of those electors. So if one candidate won 55 percent, they get 55 percent of the electors. The other candidate who lost the state would still get 45 percent of the electors. And that would do a better job of more approximating um, the overall national popular vote. Is that debate going on in any state legislatures today? 
Sort of. Um, what we actually have is a lot of different reform efforts that are attempting to overturn um, how the Electoral College works. Um, mostly there is a national popular vote uh, reform that really argues that what should happen is whoever wins the national popular vote, that state's electoral vote should go to that candidate. Um, I will tell you that I think that that is a horrible idea, and it's a horrible idea not because um, it seems unfair, but in fact because in practicality um, I think it would cause even more angst at the system than the system we have now. I cannot envision a scenario where a Republican won um, the national popular vote and everyone in California would say, yes, isn't it great? All of our electors should go to the Republican candidate as well. Um, that is not something that I imagine Californians would be pleased to see all 55 of their electoral votes going to a Republican candidate that they clearly did not vote for at the popular vote level. So going back to early history, uh, George Washington, of course, by acclamation in his, his two elections. Uh, but it, very early on, it became clear that the system really wasn't functioning exactly as they'd hoped. What happened? That's right. I mean, what is so fascinating is that um, this system almost immediately fell apart. So the framers had this notion that the Electoral College would um, either kind of find a consensus candidate that everyone loved, like George Washington, or that there would essentially be a split decision because every state would put forward a favorite son, no one would have enough electoral ballots to get a majority, and as a result, the decision, say, among the top five, according to the original Constitution, would go to the House of Representatives, and then the House of Representatives would divide in, into state delegations and then vote um, for president. What really happened was that uh, parties formed before the 1796 running of the presidency. And why did they form? Well, they formed for a couple reasons. Um, political science talks about the need for what we call long coalitions in the legislature. So basically government wouldn't really be able to operate without parties. And what we mean by that is imagine every piece of legislation, you had to form a brand new coalition every single time. It, it just wouldn't form or function. So parties operate as what political scientists call long coalitions. They are basically a group of people with interests that are generally aligned. They agree to support each other and to band together. And with that, you're able to address more issues more quickly and efficiently than you would otherwise. So these parties really kind of formed in the early 1900s, I mean 1790s, because during Washington's administration, there were a couple issues that started to divide people very quickly. Um, you saw the debt assumption bill, which was a bill that um, where basically Washington, D.C. and the federal government assumed all of the state's debts from the Revolutionary War. And that immediately created um, some angst among Southerners who did not want to see kind of a powerful federal government. So very early on, there started to be this 
division um, between kind of a party that looked at a strong federal government with kind of international interests and essentially a, a plan to improve the nation versus a party that was more interested in state and local power, a smaller federal government, and a more inward-looking foreign policy. And that separated pretty much right away around um, the 1794-93 um, time frame. When did the first crisis occur in the electoral process? So the first crisis really happens with the very first competitive election um, in 1796. We have a situation where John Adams um, is essentially the Federalist nominee, and Thomas Jefferson uh, is the Democratic uh, nominee. At the time, his party was called the Democratic Republicans. Um, and they basically were competing against each other. They each had sort of different favored vice presidential candidates. But when the balloting happened and every state voted for two people, um, it turned out that John Adams um, came in first and Thomas Jefferson came in second. And all of a sudden, you have opposition partisans serving as president and vice president in the very same administration. Um, that clued in everyone that there was going to be some problems. Then the next election, 1800, was essentially a rematch. But now John Adams is the incumbent president. Thomas Jefferson is working with James Madison, who is Speaker of the House, and they are the opposition party. And in that running of the election, Thomas Jefferson, who is now much more popular than the incumbent president because he's running as this kind of outsider and against um, those in Washington, so to speak, and um, you end up having Thomas Jefferson tying in the Electoral College with his own vice presidential pick, Aaron Burr. But because, at the time, there was no official casting of ballots for president and vice president as separate um, ballots by the electors, um, Aaron Burr kind of stayed silent and thought, hey, maybe I can actually be made the president in the House of Representatives vote if I just kind of go along. More Federalists like me than like Thomas Jefferson, maybe I'll be able to squeak out the presidency. Well, that created obviously a sort of massive division in Washington over who should, in fact, become president. Um, and on the 36th ballot in the House of Representatives, uh, Thomas Jefferson was made the uh, president of the United States. So clearly a fix was needed. And what was the fix? <laughs> <laughs> that fix was the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, um, which really what it did was um, force the electors to, to cast separate ballots, one for president and one for vice president, and be clear in that. Um, and then it reduced the overall number of individuals who um, basically, if there were a tie or no one received a, a majority, um, would go to the House of Representatives. So it reduced it from five to three. The next election that probably everyone studied in high school is the 1824 election. John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, Andrew Jackson. That's uh, right. Wh what is important to know about that election and how did it impact the process going forward? Well, there's a couple things that are really important to know is that up until James Monroe's presidency, this idea of how does the nominee get decided really wasn't a controversy. 
everyone sort of understood that John Adams would be the successor uh, to Washington, and everyone understood that James Madison would be the successor uh, to Thomas Jefferson. The problem was now you had James Monroe, who had been um, governor in Virginia. He had been secretary of state um, under James Madison, and he then becomes president. Well, a lot of other people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, how come the Virginians are consistently in this office, getting nominated for this office, and essentially winning this office? So by the time Monroe's presidency is winding down, it's now 1824, and competition is sort of been brewing for years, and people can't wait to jump in. So now they've got a lot of candidates. And um, one of those candidates was actually William Crawford, um, who had been Secretary of the Treasury, if I recall. And, and Crawford um, gets what's called the King Caucus endorsement. So the King Caucus was essentially a meeting of each party's congressional delegation to determine who should be their party's nominee. And, of course, it's kind of derogatorily referred to as King Caucus because people from outside Washington were saying, wait a minute, you mean these congressional members get to elect the king? How is that? We're in a democratic country. Um, so you have this sense that, again, the fix is in. And William Crawford gets this nomination, which might not have been so bad but for the fact that he had a very debilitating stroke. And he um, was partially blind and mostly paralyzed, and yet he still wins the caucus endorsement. So the idea that all of a sudden now the presidency is going to somebody who was basically unable to fulfill the duties of the office um, raised the hackles of many other individuals, including Andrew Jackson, um, the war hero from the War of 1812 and his Battle of New Orleans fame, um, who basically is looking at this as he's the outsider, he wants to come and, and run. And then, of course, there's John Quincy Adams, who is John Adams' uh, son, who is now a senator from Massachusetts, and he is interested, and Henry Clay, who is Speaker of the House. Um, all of them essentially jump in. All of them start contesting the King Caucus endorsement by trying to get, uh, basically, um, resolutions from their states and their state legislatures saying, isn't this great? We love our person. This should be the president of the United States. And the uh, Electoral College, again, essentially runs into a problem because the the ballots are split, and so what we have is a situation where no one earns um, a majority of the votes, and um, because it is now the top three, um, that means it is between John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and William Crawford. And Henry Clay, who is Speaker of the House, gets to essentially decide. So the former candidate who gets ousted because of the Twelfth Amendment gets to help make this decision. He makes it in favor of John Quincy Adams, 
And that becomes the basis of Andrew Jackson and his supporters' cry of there being a corrupt bargain. And the whole system, uh, again, turns into controversy by 1828. So uh, Jackson's successful in 1828, uh, and it's uh, the president that our current incumbent, President Trump, always points to as his favorite in history. How did the election of Andrew Jackson change the system once again? Well, certainly it changed in that Andrew Jackson was you know, from Tennessee. He was um, this war hero. He had a certain celebrity in the country. um, And he also wanted to represent uh, sort of the common man. I mean, interestingly enough, um, in 1828, he basically picked up William Crawford's campaign manager, who had been Martin Van Buren, um, who later then obviously becomes a president. But Martin Van Buren helps Andrew Jackson to expand the basis of the parties. So the parties become these kind of mass organizations. And by 1832, um, Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren have decided to kind of adopt an innovation um, called the National Convention, which was a way to bring all of the state party leaders to one convention to choose the nominees instead of um, using this either state legislative kind of resolutions or a congressional caucus or king caucus decision. At the same time, what was happening in the electorate? Who could vote and how was that changing? Well, generally speaking, um, what was going on was that white males were now enfranchised. So they reduced the property requirements um, that were in existence early in the republic. It was also true that the states had now um, essentially moved to this system of winner-take-all in most of the electoral vote allocations. And it was also true um, that states were no longer essentially choosing electors say, by the state legislature determining who those electors were, and they were relying on uh, the votes of the people in their states. So the national conventions, uh, which you say started in the 1830s, you've written that there were three distinct periods in history of national conventions. Uh, The national party leadership best exemplified by Abraham Lincoln's election. Why? What was the story there? Well, so the interesting part is, is that it takes some time for state party leaders to actually build up enough credibility to become delegates at their convention. Um, and so when we look to, say, whether it's, it's James Polk's um, nomination or Abraham Lincoln's nomination, what you see is that a lot of the people who are essentially delegates and managing these candidacies and are the ones um, sort of ensuring the votes um, for these uh, individuals, they are in some ways more still national party leaders than they are state party leaders. They are still senators. They are still representatives. They are um, sometimes governors, but more often than not, they are still people who had power in Washington or had powerful networks nationally. Um, James K. Polk would have never been um, the nominee in the Democratic Party had it not been for Andrew Jackson's kind of mentorship and his 
um, maneuvering Martin Van Buren away from uh, the nomination that year. So how did Abraham Lincoln, with a brand new party, the Republican Party was just a few years old at that point, how did he maneuver his way through that system to his advantage? Well, this is the interesting part. In these early years, so much was about creating a deadlock. And if you created a deadlock in these conventions, then what you could create um, through kind of the stage managing of different delegate um, activities, namely either putting a name into nomination or giving a speech or creating um, a general uproarious um, you know, noise when, when that person's name was called, um, you could essentially stage manage this notion that there was momentum behind an acceptable candidate. And so these individuals that we think of as dark horses um, who came out of nowhere, they didn't really come out of nowhere. They were people who were working within the conventions to make sure that if a deadlock happened, if more than one ballot occurred, they would enter their favored candidacy kind of into the process and then work to essentially gin up a majority. And there were deals cut, and it was the quintessential kind of back room of politics that we think about. How, when was the first time that presidential candidates started going to their own party conventions? Well, they don't start going until really um, FDR is kind of the big uh, moment where he is there. He, in uh, 1932, flies into the convention. So it's a very, very big deal. But there had been earlier instances of um, individuals showing up at, at the conventions. Um, but it was not normal, which is one of those sort of amusing things, right? If you're going to be an acceptable candidate, you had to manage to become the nominee without you being there. That's quite a trick, um, to have your supporters and friends be able to put your name into nomination and run that whole process through. And that is why, in the late 1800s, the party bosses became so important. So we had this whole era where the cities were growing. Uh, we were moving from an agrarian society to an industrial um, society. We had um, basically these party bosses who were running the political votes of their cities or their country. And the candidates would essentially go to them and essentially beg their support. And if the candidates pass muster, then the bosses would maneuver on their behalf at the conventions. Um, it is interesting because by the time of William McKinley in 1896, um, the reformers had kind of taken hold. They were disgusted by the, the kind of corruption and the, and the dealing. So they, in fact, um, turn around and William McKinley tries to run a plan against the bosses. And what he does is, as a Republican, garners the votes from Southern delegates who had not yet been important because during that period of time, the South was solidly Democratic in the general election, and nobody had thought to include those um, delegates in the nomination process. Shades of the 20th century, right? That's right. Uh, so during that period of time, three states became really important. Two of them, people listening will be, find obvious, New York and Pennsylvania. 
big states, lots yes. of power. The third is Indiana. Yes. Why was Indiana so powerful during that period? I mean, Indiana was just going back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. You had a very strong, essentially, uh, country party, um, meaning that everybody who was in the rural areas um, were in support um, of the Democratic candidates, and those who were actually in the towns um, were Republicans because the parties had switched coalitions. <laughs> so what we usually think of now is, um, you know, the Republicans in the rural areas and the Democrats in the urban. At that point in time, it was a different um, mix, but it was as competitive. And so um, this really just comes down to there was essentially a, a kind of divided population and an equally balanced population. And when a state is that way, it becomes a battleground state in the general election. And that state then matters at um, every level. So during that time period, the era of the smoke-filled rooms, as we always hear them, there were two of those contested elections thrown to the Electoral College. 1876, the Hayes-Tilden race, and 1888, Benjamin Harrison uh, had um, he lost the popular vote but won in the Electoral College. So if the party bosses were in control, why did we end up with two elections that were so close? Well, we ended up with two elections for so close, the same reason we're actually ending up with two elections, um, 2000 and 2016, that were so close. And it's because, generally speaking, um, no system does very well when the country is basically at 50-50. Um, so it's a very difficult thing to decide an election um, when, in fact, votes split relatively equally. Um, when we're talking, you know, between a percentage point. And the Electoral College tends to magnify, because of this winner-take-all allocation, um, the votes of those states that uh, the winner wins. So the Electoral College, in fact, grows a candidate's mandate um, and that is one of the things that's actually in favor of it. I mean, we can think to 1992, um, President Bill Clinton only won 43 percent of the, of the popular vote, but in fact, he won a much larger electoral college vote, which then allowed him to govern. So it is interesting that um, we had these inversions in the Gilded Age when the country was uh, wildly mobilized. We had, you know, 90 percent turnout regularly, and we also had um, kind of an equally divided country. And the, I mean, it was literally a percentage point between the two um, candidates that would determine the election. Uh, so th at that moment, the Electoral College doesn't work very well. It can invert, um, and you have to have another decision. Uh, 1876, in fact, didn't even go to the House of Representatives. It went to a specially designed uh, commission where we had um, basically a appointments of Republicans and Democrats uh, to a commission to review the different contested states' electoral ballots. Um, and there was one more Republican on it than Democrat. And on every single vote, that Republican voted Republican. And as a result, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, won, even though the popular votes suggest um, that Tilden may well have. It's a, a difficult time for Hayes establishing his 
credibility. The nickname I remember was his fraudulency in the election. So on the five times in history where presidents have uh, not won the popular vote, how challenging is it for presidents to establish themselves in such a contested environment? It's usually very hard um, because there is some sense that this system is not working. Um, I think what is interesting about it, though, is that we read into the popular vote something that we probably shouldn't, and that is that it is a true measure of the nation's will. We forget that the aggregated popular vote is something of an accident. And what I mean by that is that the candidates do not build their strategies around a popular vote. They build their strategies around an electoral college vote. So that means the campaigns only happen in certain states and not in others. That means turnout varies wildly across the states. And so in a state where people feel as though their vote doesn't matter, um, that popular vote that comes out of that state may not have the same kind of meaning as a state in which the candidates and the campaigns are heavily invested and vying for every ballot. So I think what we have to realize is that the aggregated um, popular vote just doesn't contain the kind of meaning that I think we'd like it to have. The best way, I always say, and I think most political scientists say to think about the Electoral College is that it's more like the World Series than the Super Bowl. So in the World Series, it doesn't really matter how many runs you have in each game. You have to win four games. Um, you know, we saw just with the Washington Nationals um, this last year, you know, they had many, many runs down in uh, Houston, and then they came home to Washington, D.C. and didn't win, and it it looked as though they might lose the series if they didn't win another game. So even when you aggregate up all of the runs across all seven games, does the winner of the person who had the most runs, should they win? No, we say it's four games. Well, the Electoral College says essentially it's the most states. Thanks to the Washington Nationals for providing a metaphor <laughs> for the election this year. Uh, we're now in history in the age of moving images, so we're going to yeah. show one from 1912, uh, an important year because the, uh, the incumbent president, Taft, was challenged by a very popular past president, Theodore Roosevelt. So what happened to the, to the process when uh, Theodore Roosevelt ended up uh, being, challenging his own president in that year? Uh, he ended up running as a third-party candidate, Bull Moose. But what happened to the, the, the party and the process as a result? Well, what was so fascinating about 1912 is you have a former president basically saying, I want to run again, and I think my party should let me run again. And the party says, no, we're going to go with the current president, um, Taft. So Roosevelt mounts this run really because he doesn't win his party's nomination. And in doing so, um, he divides the party. Um, and as a result, Woodrow Wilson ends up winning the election. Um, and that party, um, the Republican Party, really does kind of divide in such a way that it isn't able to reform um, in any sort of kind of dominant way for years. I mean, yes, it is true that the Republicans come back after Woodrow Wilson's um, presidency for that decade, 
But then what we see is that um, Franklin Roosevelt is able to kind of pick up that coalition and run with it, and the Democrats are ensconced for many years. Um, at the kind of primary level, and what was important about that period was that people were questioning these party bosses, um, the progressives who really got going in the late 1890s and then carried through all the way um, to Franklin Roosevelt's presidency had really been about changing the nature of who were the delegates at these national conventions. They said it's not fair that it's these, you know, party bosses or state or national elites. The people should decide. Um, and the people really need to have a way to decide. So what we saw was that um, the primary election was created as a way to select uh, delegates to the conventions. Which was the first state in the country to hold a primary and win? Florida in 1901 is actually the first state um, to adopt a primary ballot. Um, Wisconsin um, really sort of takes it forward because Governor Robert La Follette um, pushes forward on having primaries in 1905. So during the 20th century, what are the important periods for the evolution of the electoral process? Well, the most important thing to realize is that these first primaries were what we generally started to call beauty contests. They weren't necessarily aligned with um, in the delegate and the vote. So you would vote in your primary, but that didn't um, necessarily bind anyone in your state to a certain delegate or to delegates who went to the convention. And as a result, the primaries for most of the 1900s um, become just a way that a candidate can demonstrate their electability. This is why everyone points to uh, John F. Kennedy running in the West Virginia primary because what he was saying to his party is, look, I'm a Catholic and I can still do well in a very Protestant state. Um, so he runs, he does well, and the um, Democratic Party says, yes, he is electable. Um, in 1968, this system of kind of beauty contests and national elites managing the delegates um, reaches another crisis and comes to a head. Uh, we have video of that that uh, convention, which anyone was alive will remember <laughs> the uh, the great contested convention. But just a quick question, because we're going to see it on television. In 1950s, television arrived, and soon after that, uh, Madison Avenue and the advertising age. So how did those two uh, additions to our culture impact the presidential selection process? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is is it just starts to change the notion of who is an acceptable candidate. Right? Who should people look to as somebody who um, can win? And I think this is where the Republicans selecting Dwight Eisenhower is really fascinating because, in some ways, this is a throwback all the way to Andrew Jackson or to um, you know any of the other generals, Ulysses S. Grant, um, who won at different points in our history because war heroes were celebrities. And so there was this sense that, 
you know, the only way the Republicans could win against the Democratic coalition was to bring a war hero onto the ticket and create a coalition behind him. Um, Tom Dewey, who had been the prior um, nominee, had actually managed the kind of delegate vote-getting for Eisenhower, and it's really because of Tom Dewey's efforts that, in fact, Earl Warren ended up on the Supreme Court, because Earl Warren was interested in the nomination. Dewey convinced him to throw over his votes to Eisenhower. Eisenhower then appoints Earl Warren, and uh, the Warren Court is history, and a very important history, which wouldn't have occurred but for some of those political maneuvers in the early 50s. So let's look at a little uh, clip from the 1968 convention. And uh, remember that this nation is right in the middle of the Vietnam War at the time and uh, protests on the outside of the streets in Chicago. And let's look at what was happening at the podium at the Democrats' convention. I proudly accept the nomination of our party. We have heard hard and sometimes bitter debate, but I submit that this is the debate and this is the work of a free people, the work of an open convention and the work of a political party responsive to the needs of this nation. So why was 1968 a crisis <laughs> in the process? Well, because it wasn't really an open convention. Um, what you saw is that um, President Lyndon Johnson had worked very hard in the background after he had stepped down from running to kind of manage those delegates and ensure that his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, would garner the nomination. Um, those individuals who were running in the primaries and those anti-war candidates, in particular uh, Gene McCarthy and uh, McGovern, his, their supporters were absolutely enraged that they didn't have a way to be uh, kind of important on the floor, to have any votes on the floor. And they could not believe that Humphrey, who had not run in any primary, was now going to um, secure the Democratic nomination. And so with that, there were protests and riots um, in Chicago that became very violent. Um, and the Democrats basically said, okay, the only way we get out of this is to agree to reform the process. And they established what eventually became the McGovern-Fraser reforms. And what were the reforms, that important part of the reforms that came out of it? So the most important part of the reforms was that um, these, uh, the delegates had to be essentially named and, and selected prior to the primary in those states. So what we saw was that the primaries now were, were being bound and linked to the delegate selection process. Um, so if you win as a delegate, you're bound to vote for the candidate, that you, as you're, you're an elector for a specific candidate. Yes. Um, it is, it's still an interesting thing in that every um, sort of year the parties tinker a little bit with their delegate selection process. Um, different states are awarded different numbers of delegates. Um, the Democrats also 
ensured in their reforms that there was a broader diversity of delegates. So they did um, put affirmative action type quotas. Um, the Democratic Party says um, that all of the delegates, it has to be divided evenly, 50-50, um, in terms of women and men. It has to um, have a representative sample, essentially, of minorities. So if there's 40 percent of um, the population in a state are minorities, and that delegation better have um, something close to 40 percent of its delegates going to the convention being minorities. So although political junkies and reporters would love the idea of a brokered convention, this was essentially the death knell of the brokered convention? It was, because what it meant was once you um, accrued enough um, delegates, you then knew that you would get the vote on the first ballot. So logically that shifts the process to the primaries. It does. And when did Iowa and New Hampshire become so important in the primary process? Um, well, in some ways right after. Um, in fact, Iowa really makes its mark with Jimmy Carter in 1976. Um, when we look to the process in 1976, um, there was a large number of Democrats who were running. Obviously, Richard Nixon had stepped down after Watergate. Um, Gerald Ford had taken over. He wasn't a popular um, president. And there was a lot of competition. Um, most of the people running were, in fact, Washington senators who were saying, hey, look, um, you know, we're here. We're going to clean out the corruption. Um, you know, we were part of essentially overthrowing, um, you know, the, the Republicans who were engaged in uh, really not so great things for the country. And... Jimmy Carter comes in, this governor from Iowa, I mean, from Georgia, and he, in fact, um, comes in after none of the above in Iowa. So he really places second. Um, but like Bill Clinton's second place in 92, um, it kind of rocketed his momentum upward, and he careened right through the primaries and won the nomination, uh, which surprised a lot of the delegates made the Democrats, um, on the heels of that, decide that they needed to tinker with their process. And that was really when they added superdelegates. The other thing that happened in 1976 was the re-emergence of nationally televised debates in the fall. They, uh, everyone remembers, uh, at least, or learned about the 1960 JFK-Nixon debates, but they went on a hiatus. They came back in 76. What impact did they have on the electoral process? Well, I think it, debates are really interesting because it, there's a lot of study that show that the debates are not, in fact, what decides the election. It is, in fact, the discussion about who won the debate that becomes more important. Um, so one of the things that is true is that the debates did create more of a sense um, that, you know, having a television presence, um, being able to connect uh, with voters through the television camera was, in fact, going to be more important than the retail process um, of actually going out and shaking hands in these different states. Um, so I think the debates have had really mixed um, kind of effects. And we do have this situation now where, generally speaking, our, our primaries and our process is so much more um, something that approximates a reality show than it is necessarily 
um, the candidates getting to know the voters, the voters getting to know the positions, and um, the voters choosing the candidate who's best for their party. We have about 10 minutes left, and I, I want to get to where we are today, but very uh, briefly, I'd like to hear a little bit about you so people know who they're <laughs> talking to. So you have uh, been an academic studying this process all your life, uh, native Californian. What got you interested in it? Well, I will say this. I, um, you know, it's funny. I look back and I've had a lot of different iterations of my life. So, in fact, I did um, start off in college um, in the late 80s and in the early 90s sort of watching the fall of the wall, um, the Berlin Wall, of course, um, the kind of end of the Cold War and the beginning of Bill Clinton's presidency. I was in California um, during the the riots that happened uh, during the O.J. Simpson trial, there was a lot going on in those sort of early 1990s, um, which made a lot of us in California say, wow, politics is important and we should engage. Um, and I, in fact, um, spent much of my time in uh, the 1990s actually active and engaged in democratic politics. Um, and then I ended up serving in uh, Bill Clinton's administration uh, at the Department of Education, and I, I worked as a corporate liaison. Um, and then I really returned to academia in the early 2000s and have been there ever since. So I, I'm fascinated by politics mostly because I've seen it at every angle. I've seen it as a partisan. I've seen it as a government appointee. Um, I've seen it as an academic. And I've even seen it um, from the position of the business community because I also worked in business um, as a consultant and did a lot of things with different corporations. You so also I'm, married someone who's involved <laughs> in the political world. Your Wikipedia page says your spouse is someone known to the C-SPAN audience, Major Garrett, who covers the White House for CBS. Um, what are dinner table conversations like at home when you bring two <laughs> different parts of the, the process to the table? Well, I think what's so interesting is that, that Major is really a phenomenal journalist. And he and I almost always kind of have this, this tension in one of our conversations. So... I, as an academic, am always theorizing. Where are things going? What is this predicting? What hypothesis can I test? And almost always, when I ask Major, what do you think? Where do you think this is going? He responds by saying, well, this is what we know now. And that is really the difference. Journalists um, report what is happening and are not sort of interested or focused on um, kind of the long-term consequences. They are in the middle of kind of the first draft of history. And I, as a political scientist, am always trying to understand history and understand what it means for the future. Your uh, graduate school turns out a lot of people who become political uh, operatives, campaign managers, yes. etc. When did they become an important part of the process? So they start to become an important part of the process right about the time that... Um, Essentially, the, the McGovern-Fraser um, reforms come in in those, in those 1970s as the um, sort of television is taking off, as managed campaigns become important, but also, and I think this is really important, the parties lost power. We have to understand that consultants became a way for there to be essentially a um, continuation of political knowledge and experience 
um, that used to reside within the parties, now it resides within the consultants. So when the parties lost their power, the consultants um, took over. And that is both good and bad. Um, it is true that when we look at someone like you know, David Axelrod or Karl Rove, um, they know extraordinary um, sort of political history and they have a great deal of experience. The problem is, is that a lot of the candidates that they are managing and putting forward have very little knowledge um, of politics and how governance actually works. So we have this problem now where the candidates keep saying they're going to outsource politics to the people who know things, but then they get mad um, and sort of are running against all of the people who do know things. So the process today also costs millions of dollars, uh, hiring these staffs, paying for the media and the places. When did money become a major factor in presidential politics? Well, again, all of these things sort of rise together, and they rise together largely because the parties lose their um, force. We have um, a colleague of mine, um, Julia Zeri, talks a lot about sort of weak parties and strong partisanship. And that is really the era in which we are in. Um, you know, the parties don't have that much control. Um, the candidates do have more control so long as they can raise the money. And yet the candidates don't really have the political knowledge to advance their um, positions, and that's where then the consultants come in. So there are a number of fixes. Uh, there's a big debate that continues about Iowa and New Hampshire and, and their yes. representa representation of the, of the electorate overall. So uh, there's discussion about national primary or compressed regional primaries. We talked about the elimination of the Electoral College or changing it, public financing of campaigns. Are any of these fixes ones that would have a, a substantive and positive impact on the kinds of primaries and ultimately elections that we have? So a national primary would only make a lot of the things that we see right now worse. Um, the cost of elections would skyrocket. Um, only people with very broad name recognition or some sort of celebrity would win. Um, I think that a national primary is probably one of the worst reforms we could implement. Um, I would, if we were doing it in sort of a rational way, have a rotating regional primary um, so that we basically, in different elections, had different um, sort of groups of states go together, um, which would allow kind of focused retail campaigning. Um, the situation we have right now is really that Iowa and New Hampshire were grandfathered um, in, and they became important, and now there's no way to really move them out of the process. Uh, Nevada and South Carolina have been added to the mix of the early states, but you can see that oftentimes they're not necessarily as decisive as you might think. Um, the basic problem is, is that you're talking about a trade-off between money and voters. So if you really want the voters to get to know the candidates, you need to have fewer states. If you really want everybody to have a fair shot at electing the candidate, um, then you need to have those candidates have a lot of money. And 
neither system is really uh, fair. So we're going to close because twice in the uh, last 16 years we have had contested elections, uh, and the last one, of course, was in the Electoral College, not the popular vote. Uh, The last piece of video is from that historic moment in 2000 in the House of Representatives when uh, one of the aspirants uh, actually announced the results for his opponent, Al Gore and, and George W. Bush. Let's watch. The state of the vote for President of the United States as delivered to the President of the Senate is as follows. The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for President of the United States is 538, of which a majority is 270. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. This announcement of the state of the vote by the President of the Senate shall be deemed a sufficient declaration of the persons elected President and Vice President of the United States, each for the term beginning on the 20th day of January 2001, and shall be entered together with a list of the votes on the journals of the Senate and the House of Representatives. May God bless our new President and our new Vice President, and may God bless the United States of America. Lara Brown, as we close here, we have about a minute left. What We started out talking about the Founding Fathers and how they created this system. What does that moment say about the American system? Well, that's an extraordinary moment because what you have is an act of statesmanship. You have an, a, an individual who was running for election who decided uh, not to create a constitutional crisis by essentially ignoring the Supreme Court decision. He could have. He could have recognized the Florida... Um, representatives who were petitioning um, in that chamber to be heard and to throw out Florida's ballots. And had he done that, he could have declared himself president. But he did not. And it is so important to realize that at really critical junctures in our country's history, statesmanship has been all that has kept us uh, going. Uh, Bruce Ackerman writes an extraordinary book um, about precisely that failure of the Founding Fathers around making the Vice President the President of the Senate who would announce that ballot. And we close, but a very interesting trip through American history and how we elect presidents. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me here. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org. Next Sunday on Q&A, we talk with Patty Roll, a founding editor of USA Today and vice president of content and exhibit development for the museum. She talks about the historic tension between American presidents and the press and how that plays out today. That's next Sunday night at 8 Eastern on C-SPAN's Q&A. C-SPAN's Washington Journal, live every day with news and